0: I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. One of our favorite authors at R.J. Julia's is, is Danny Shapiro, and we hosted her for an event there the other day for her latest memoir called Hourglass, Time, Memory, and Marriage. This latest memoir is an exquisite jewel about, I guess, just what it says, time, memory, and marriage, but I think her... Take on marriage. Uh, people will find interesting if they're thinking of getting married or newly married or have been married for a long time. So uh, that's probably a lot of people. Uh, Danny has written three memoirs, five novels. She uh, was a professor of creative writing at Wesleyan, NYU, and Columbia. She writes for a slew of magazines like The New Yorker, Oprah Magazine, Vogue, and Elle. And she's the co founder of Siren Land Writers Conference in Positano, Italy. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. So,
1: welcome, Danny. Thanks, Roxanne. It's great to be with you. So,
0: this book—you've—you've you've written memoirs before, um, and there's always the issue in writing memoirs about how much do you say, how much do you not say, and implicate other people. Now, this book, Hourglass, is about Michael, who you refer to as M, uh, in the book, and. How did you balance being truthful without exposing Michael in a way that you wouldn't want to expose him? How did you balance those things?
1: Look, that, was, that was the high wire act of writing this book. And it was also the thing that when I realized that, that Hourglass, that this book about marriage, my marriage, was going to be my next book, that was completely petrifying to me mm. because in order for it to be a good book, I had to cut pretty close to the bone. Um, And at the same time, I wasn't even slightly willing to betray my husband or my marriage. Um, The desire was to write from a place that I was inside of. You know, this idea of what does it mean to be in a long marriage? What does it mean to form yourself alongside Mm. another human being and against another human being? You know, just the whole dance of what it is to be in a long marriage was what I wanted to do. But the High Wire Act was, as I was writing it, being very conscious of being willing to take risks. Um, And I never wanted him to ever look back at my having written this book and say, I wish you hadn't done that. Yeah, Very much the same way As a mother, writing about their child, writing about when my son was born. I remember looking at him and thinking, you did not ask for a mother who was a writer. And I have to be aware of your privacy. And I never wanted my son, Jacob, to ever look back from age 30 and say, I wish you hadn't written that. So that that was always my barometer. But with my husband, I really had never written about him before. So,
0: Danny, if I remember this, now, I don't remember whether I know this from a conversation with you and Michael or whether I know this from the book. But wasn't there an instance where when you first spoke to Michael about this, he said, I knew when I agreed to date you that at some point I'd be in a book?
1: That was. Do I have that quote right? That was something that Michael said. And and, um it's not in. It's not in Hourglass. I remember when he said it. It completely floored me because yeah. that meant he knew something I didn't know. And and I've heard him say it a couple of times. He said, "When when I married Danny, I knew that someday she would write about me." And I find that really fascinating because I didn't know that I was going to write about him. I mean, in in my memoir Devotion, one of the things that readers said about that book was, "Where was? Where's your husband?" I d- I wrote a book about my spiritual search and he really wasn't a part of it. I mean, he was in the book, but very very Incidentally. Much, incidentally, because he wasn't really part of my yeah. spiritual journey. He supported it, but he wasn't part of it. And readers actually said, where, you know, where is he? And, I, and, and then suddenly here I was writing an entire book about him.
0: One of the things that I find myself thinking a lot about from the perspective of being in my late 60s is about time, which is a real... To me is a big theme... In the book, in, and you write uh, in the book, how do you suppose time works, a slippery succession of long hours adding up to ever shorter days and years that disappear like falling dominoes? Near the end of her life, Grace Paley once remarked that the decades between 50 and 80 feel not like minutes, but seconds. So how does this understanding that you have come to about time impact how you live now?
1: That's a great question. I mean, I, I, I think I've been thinking about time probably since I wrote Devotion and kind of went on that spiritual journey because I don't think you can go on a spiritual journey and not be thinking about time. Right. And and that was really my my, my, my first obsession in a way before the the idea of – Writing about marriage even came into it. Um, I suppose one of the things that happened in writing this book, because part of it is about reaching back through time to my younger self, particularly I was very focused on age 17 and (laughs) on these... on these years where I, I, I had kept journals and I knew I still had them and I had never understood why I bothered to keep them. I certainly didn't want anybody else to read them. And I used to, yeah. every once in a while, I'd be on, on a flight and the turbulence would be happening. And I'd, and I'd think, oh, my God, the journals. I should have burned the <laughs> journals. The, the feeling that I had or the question was, was this woman that I am today alive in that 17-year-old? Mm-hmm. Was, she, was she visible in right. any way in that 17-year-old girl? And is she that 17-year-old girl is still somehow alive in me. Right. And so I guess in terms of how I live my life today, it's almost as if the present and not so much the future, but the present and the past feel very um, intermingled in some way. Fluid. Very fluid. I think, you know, as, as, as writers or as, as someone who teaches writing, I'll often talk to my students about the idea of memory being in the present tense. Mm. Right? Because memory is for us very often in the present exactly. tense. it's often more real and more alive than what's happening right here, right now. So Danny, that's this might get a
0: little metaphysical, but I think this idea about memory and the present is an interesting one because let's think about it this way. You're You're present today, and, you know, knowing you, I know how present you live, that you, you know, through your yoga practice, through all the things that you've learned, you are very present. But I think people forget that by being present, you have to be informed
1: by your memory. That's all we have, right? right? Really, if if we think about what consciousness is, what... um what point of view is, what everything, everything that we bring to bear on our lives, everything that we know is something we've remembered. Everything. Um, whether right. it's childhood memory or, or it's something... Or how you
0: react to something. Right.
1: Or it could be something we read in the paper this morning. We're still remembering it. Yeah. Um, so everything, all those building blocks are always memory. And, and memory is also constantly shifting and changing, um, which makes, for me as a memoirist, thinking about... You know the whole idea of what is true and what is fact being really kind of two different things. Yeah. Um, And how we um, how we how we remember things changes every time we remember them. Neurobiologists talk about that all the time. The great Eric Kandel wrote a, a a brilliant book about this. And if they're changing every time we remember then where do we even locate? Well, so
0: so that brings me to this question that I think everybody has wondered about since memoirs, beginning with Frank McCourt, who I think then set the new, you know, the sort of modern memoir standard. And I remember reading Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes, and he had statements in quotes from when he was five. You know, I, I have a hard time believing that he remembered word for word. He didn't keep journals, and he certainly didn't keep them at five. So how do you think you think about a memoir being Factual. I mean, one definition I've heard is it is factual in the sense that this is the way I think of it now. This is the way I recall it. That so that has integrity, even though it might not be factual.
1: Right. I, well, I think that that fact needs to be, especially these days, needs to be looked at very, <laughs> very, very carefully when we when we say fact. Like I can fact check certain things if I don't remember the weather on a particular day. If I and I've never done this because that 's not what makes me tick right. but if I if the weather was important to what I was writing and I really needed to find out what it was, whether it was a dark and stormy night or whether it was a beautiful spring day, I could go look that up and find that date and find out what it was. What someone said and the way they said it or what um, you know what the light looked like streaming through the window or what what was cooking on the stove becomes very subjective in terms of memory and this actually happened to me uh, when I was writing. When I was writing Devotion, um, I was writing a scene that I realized I had also written about in my memoir, Slow Motion. It was the same scene. It was the scene of the day that my father died. Mm. And um, I knew the weather. I remembered what I was wearing, a gold silk blouse and a black skirt and high-heeled boots, because it was the 80s. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I was standing in the hospital corridor, and my father had just died. And my family were Orthodox Jews, as you know. And and so as I write the scene in Devotion... Um, my half sister comes, you know, bursting through the doors of the hospital, and she says, "Where's Dad?" Meaning, "Where's, where's, where's Dad's body?" And I said, "He's still up. It's he's still upstairs in in the room." And she says to me, "How could you have done that? How could you have left the body unattended?" And it, and 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 I realized that I had I had done something that would have you know constituted something my father really wouldn't have wanted because
0: in Orthodox in Judaism, in Orthodox
1: Judaism, the body is never left alone from the moment of death until the moment of burial. Right. So I finish the scene. I write it. I'm happy with it. I polish it, and then I go back and look at what I wrote in slow motion. And in slow motion, it's the same weather, it's the same outfit, it's the same everything, same place I'm standing in the in the corridor of the hospital. And my father's younger brother, my uncle, bursts through the doors and says, where's your father? Mm. And I say, he's still upstairs in his room, and he says, how could you have done that? How could you have left it? So everything about the two scenes was the same. The emotional life of them, the, the weather of them, um, the... the bearings, you know, inner and outer. And those words came out of the mouths of two different people. And those are books that were written a a decade apart. And even as I realized that, I knew that I would let it stand. I wasn't going to correct what I had just written in Devotion to have it line up with what I had written in slow motion. Because, I mean, to me, to go back to your original question, memoir is about inclining the mind in the direction of memory, not of fact, um, but the truth of memory, which is different. If I wrote... Slow motion today, twenty years later, it would be a different book. Yeah, so that was a question I was
0: just going to ask you. If in fact your recollection of that moment after your father died was altogether different, never mind that there was just
1: a different narrator, would you have let it sit as well? That would be problematic. You know, I had a really interesting conversation. Um, I was just at Sirenland and Tobias wolf who you know Hello. has arguably written one of the greatest, the, one of my all-time memoirs favorites. of the twentieth century, mm. This Boy's Life, um, we were talking about um, uh, Darren Strauss's memoir, Half a Life, Yeah, um, which is a book I really love. I'm really intimate with. I actually wrote the review for the Times of that. Book. I hadn't read that. Oh, it's a great book. Mm. Um, the first line of Darren Strauss's Half a Life um, is, um, uh, Half my life ago, I killed a girl. Uh, so when Darren Strauss was 18 years old, he was Driving with some friends on a bright sunny day, totally sober, uh, just heading on some wholesome, you know, errand, and a girl on a bicycle swerved in front of his car and he hit her and she died. Oy. And he buried it for years and years and then in his late 30s, father of young children himself, he realized he needed to write about it. It it affected everything about the the fiction that he had written before. Mm. And it was a secret. It was a secret he was carrying. So he wrote this beautiful book. Um, In the book, he describes going to the girl's funeral. um, And uh, there's a terrible moment at the funeral where the girl's mother says to him, Darren, I know they they tell me it's not your fault and I believe them, but just understand you're living for two people now. So it's this chilling moment. But in that scene... He writes that his mother did not come to the funeral. She was too upset she did not come to the funeral. He went with his father. The book comes out. His mother at some point reads the book and says, I was there. What do you do with that? And that was what Toby Wolf and I were talking about—the question of do you continue to let it? um, I I think my feeling is you do continue to let it stand because it was your. I think you do. He tried to rewrite it so that his mother could be in that scene, and it didn't feel true to his memory. So this doesn't mean he wasn't making it up. He wasn't. You know, I think the writer really knows when he or she is inclining in the direction in the direction of imagination or inclining in the direction of memory. you know the difference when you're writing a story, like to quote Grace Paley for the second time in this podcast, when, when Grace, she was my teacher, she used to say, if you're stuck in a short story, just have somebody else walk through the door. Well, if you're writing memoir, you can't do that. You can't yeah. just have somebody else walk through the door if they didn't. So it's very tricky, but I, I, it, it's gotten, memoirs gotten such sort a of bad rap because... Of a handful of people who have written what I think of as the pathological memoir, which is I'm going to try to fool you. I'm I'm going to make I'm going to make a story up. Yeah.
0: Well, I, you know, I as I was listening to you, I was thinking of it in a slightly different way. That, for instance, when when I read Hourglass, and you know, we're friendly and n- know know somewhat about each other, it felt. Authentic. Now, I hate that word because it's now overused. But to me, what you see the difference in a memoir of is if it feels like they're being a trickster in trying to be their best selves. For instance, Frank McCourt's book felt like Frank McCourt. Mm-hmm. You know, as I came to know him over the mm-hmm. years, he might have had quotes on stuff that, you know, was a little bit of taking some liberty. But it didn't really matter because it told a story That felt like the real Frank McCourt. He wasn't trying to create, you know, Frank McCourt, the perfect Irish immigrant.
1: Right. Well, I mean, what would that endeavor really be? The idea of doing that in between the pages of a book makes absolutely uh, no emotional or psychological sense to me. But that was also my struggle in writing Hourglass is I can decide for myself that I... I'm not going to put any kind of burnished view of myself out there, but I was also deciding for my husband.
0: Yeah, that was the thing to me. And I would say the only part that made me a little squeamish on behalf of Michael was where you get to the topic of maybe being disappointed in how things are or where they went. And the other part that I was struck by didn't make me squeamish, but there's a part of the book. So Michael was a a war zone journalist. He had an extraordinary career, you know, highly respected, put himself in danger all the time, a very dramatic life. And somewhere in the book, you talk about what was the impact of him giving that up for you? Did that mean he wasn't the most that Michael could be? and as i read that i thought what how would michael answer that how did you how did you answer that for him how did you think about talking about that
1: well i mean to go back to the beginning of what you were saying it made me think about the title mm-hmm. and the fact that this is not yes i touch upon or more than touch upon the idea of disappointment in the book. I don't think you can be with somebody for nearly 20 years and not feel some disappointment. Mm -hmm. Um, If this had been a book about a kind of permanent condition of disappointment... You wouldn't have written it. I wouldn't have written it. Right. Um, and, And that would be a very sad state of affairs. And that's the beauty, I think, of what you do, Danny. I think that, you
0: know, to me, somebody married... 48 years, that you capture this sort of ebb and flow of a marriage so perfectly that happy marriages aren't made up of 100% happy moments. Right. And so how you register that, because it made me think also, we'll come back to this original part of the question, is in a marriage, there's two things that you, well, there's a lot of things you could be, but I'll just pick these two. One is you could become resentful and bitter, and the other is that you can be angry. Sustained resentment and bitterness is corrosive, Mm -hmm. right? It's Mm -hmm. an ugly, invisible thing that nobody can get their arms around and deal with. Um, uh, Alice Hoffman had a—I think it was Alice Hoffman had a line once about—she was trying to have a conversation— a character was trying to have a conversation with her husband and said that she realized it was trying to get a grip on climbing a mountain made of ice mm, mm, right which mm-hmm. is a great that you that you can't find an entry point mm-hmm. you can't get traction mm-hmm. so when you think about marriage to michael or generally what do you think saves and allows you to stay in the disappointment and as the ebb and flow as opposed to a disappointment that tiptoes
1: towards resentment or bitterness. Like toward that kind of corrosive yeah. you know, that, that place That's where you, not a good place to right, go. Right. No, I I learned a lot about marriage, my marriage and marriage in general in writing hourglass because part of what it is to write a book like this is also I had to because it's I'm not like publishing my journals, I crafted something that is hopefully artful. And so I had to think about shape. Yeah. And in thinking about literary shape, I also really um, had to think about shape in terms of what's inside my marriage in a way that I've never really had to do before. I mean, who does that? I think we all do in some way. Maybe. I mean, I I I think I, I, I just really focused on it in this way as I was crafting the book to think, what is the shape of these 18 years um as opposed to i mean somebody asked me the other day why now like why did you write you know right. from this place and if i wrote this from 48 years it would be i'd know i'd know different things mm-hmm. i'd know more things or um, less or <laughs> well you know So there's the moment early in the book where um, I write um, and M, Michael, says to me, um, I'll take care of it. He's talking at that moment about a woodpecker who's pecking away at the siding of our house. I love that scene. And the woodpecker who returns and returns over the course of the book as he does over the course of our lives. Right. He's still around. Um, But M says, I'll take care of it. And the next lines are something like, I write, um, this this is a part of our marriage, um, something that I love and long to believe. And so as I was writing the book, I knew that there was this way in which I'll take care of it was really important. Mm-hmm. But then there's this moment pretty far into the book where um, it's, in, it's in a more delicate, more vulnerable moment. and yeah. And it's late at night, and he's sleeping, and I look at him, and I think to myself, I'll take care of it. And I really felt like I was understanding in a much more articulated way something that I knew intuitively about my marriage, which is that or marriage, which is that 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 hot potato of I'll take care of it gets passed back and forth between two people over the course of their lives together and I think maybe the place where it becomes problematic is when neither one of them feel like they can take care of it yeah or wants to you or, know, or wants to or, or feels like it got Im, like, out of balance,
0: right. out of balance.
1: But it can be out of balance for a period of time. I mean, there's, a, there's another moment in the book where I'm on the phone with my beloved 92-year-old aunt, mm-hmm. and um, she asks me how things are, and I you know, really don't want to burden her, but it's a particular moment where a project of M's has just fallen apart. And I tell her that, and she pauses, and she says, How are his spirits? And at that moment, his spirits weren't so hot, and I, I got emotional. I started to cry, and, and I was so mad at myself for, for crying, and she's 90, her, 92 yeah. years old. What does she need with this? And she paused on the other end of the phone, and she said, Sweetheart, I remember that really difficult 23-year period that I had <laughs> <laughs> and I'm on, on the other end of the phone and thinking a difficult 23 year period. Um, I guess you can say that when when you're 92 and it doesn't constitute yeah. like the bulk of your life. I mean if I had heard that sentence when I was 23, right? It's like You'd like for my whole life, right? And you know, no one wants to have a difficult 23 year period, but there was profound perspective in mm-hmm. that. Um, and, and really, it goes back to the the very impetus for me in wanting to write this book is the thing that I wanted to think about. It's a phrase of Wendell Berry's, was I wanted to think about the problems of duration. Yeah, It's not easy. You know, I've been talking to young women a lot recently, you know, Just embarking on marriages and, or planning weddings. And I feel like saying, like, sweetheart, it's not about the bouquet, you know, and it's like the tenderloin versus the Cornish hen. It's, it's. And do you think they get it as I watch these vows? You know, from the perspective
0: of somebody married a long time and understanding exactly what you're saying, you know, that there you could have a year where Kevin is carrying the whole load and really, you know, getting me from point A to point B. And there are other times that I'm doing it. And sometimes it's more than a year. Sometimes it's a day or a week. But I wonder how you enter that conversation with somebody newly married Without them thinking you're being cynical, you know, like how it'll be interesting, Danny, as you start touring with this book and the conversations will be with newly married people. I think for when you're going to be talking to somebody who's married more than 15 years, they're going to eat this up and no, they're, feel they're all, preaching to the converted. But and they'll feel comforted.
1: I have been hearing, though, I, I was interviewed recently by a young journalist Relatively newly married. I mean, she was breastfeeding during our interview. <laughs> wow, literally. And she um, she said to me, "I feel like this is a book that every mother of the bride should give her daughter, um, and that in a way, I agree. That it's like a a crystal ball, just sort of taking a look at. People are not experiencing it as like, oh my God, they're you know, like, look what I'm in for. Oh no, I didn't sign up for that." Um, it, it there's something i think bracing about the idea that this is um that there is beauty in all of it. Like Rilke's phrase, you know, the beauty and the terror of it. Yeah. It's, it's about the reality of what it is to walk alongside with someone and not know. I mean, early in the book, I describe when our when our son was sick as a baby, um, my looking at, at Michael and thinking, we hardly know each other. Mm. We've been together for— And now you got to
0: deal with this. We've
1: been together for two minutes. I don't know what you're made of, and you don't know what I'm made of. When we're, when we're looking at our beloved baby and not knowing whether he's going to be okay— we don't know. Yeah. And then how we got how we in particular got through that through that was enormously strengthening to us because we really did you could do it. We did it and we we learned that we could do it and that it wasn't even it was far from work. It was we we were we this was something we did very well together. Was well,
0: and that. the the word that I would think of when I thought about talking to newly married uh People is that it was comfortingly realistic. Because mm-hmm. I found the book to be very optimistic and hopeful, but optimistic and hopeful by accepting a reality. Right which I think a lot, you know, it seems to me people live in one territory or another. I've spoken to, you know, hundreds of people who want to talk about marriage as friends, and they're like always complaining, always complaining, always complaining, or they're always in denial. Mm -hmm. And I think that there aren't as many people living in the comfort of the reality of what a long-term relationship is. And I think that's what you do here.
1: I'm glad to hear that. I mean, that's it's one of those um, things that people say that we don't really know what goes on in anybody else's marriage. Yeah, right. And and we don't. And we don't. And and. In a way, this was my attempt to peel that back a little bit um, and look at at this marriage not in all of its you know I, I didn't lay us bare yeah. um, but in really trying to be honest about what it is to kind of ride those waves you know there, there's a, there's a moment toward the end, and this is hardly a spoiler um, but where uh, things are once again kind of on an upswing and 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 are looking good. Um, for M professionally. And, you know, he's been pretty beaten up by Hollywood. And he says to me, we've been here before. You know, mm. everybody's paying him compliments and telling him he's written the greatest script and it's going to be fantastic. And he says, we've been here before. And it was a revelation to me. I said to him, no, we've never been here before. Because no matter how many times something may seem like a repetition, it's new. Yeah. And, and, and there's really no way of actually knowing what's going to happen.
0: You know, at the very beginning of the book you talk about that beginnings are like seeds that contain within them everything that will ever happen. What would you have predicted about your marriage that then, or what wouldn't you have ever predicted that ended up being startling to you in it having happened? That's a great and provocative and interesting (laughs) question. I thought about it when you said the seeds are there, okay. I don't think I went
1: into my marriage was a whole lot of fantasies about what it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, you
0: were in your 30s. Right. You weren't... In- a kid.
1: Right. I mean, I I absolutely fell hard for my husband the moment I met him. And so there was this quality, I think, that, that both of us had that was just, you're the one. Um, it was something as it happened that I realized I had never felt before. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that I walked down the aisle in two white dresses twice before, once as a teenager. I mean, it was yeah. literally died. The I one just, you forgot
0: to tell Michael about.
1: I didn't know. I, to- <laughs> I, to- I, told, I told him. I told him. It just took me a little while. It just took a while. Yeah. Um, and it was before we <laughs> Got married that yeah. I told him, and then and then the other at 28 when I probably should have known better, but I was I was getting married for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. completely. Nobody
0: ever does that, Danny. I'm yeah. shocked that you <laughs> did that. That's really <laughs> stunning.
1: Oh, but I look back now and I think I walked down the aisle knowing I was, I was making a mistake with that second marriage. I absolutely you knew did. I, was, I did. I knew I was making. A did mistake. was there a minute that you thought about? Not going through at the wedding, you know, not really. It, or was there it, too I, much momentum? I was on a, you know, I was on the roller coaster of the bouquet, the Cornish mm-hmm. hens, the, the, yeah. the tenderloin. You were there. The, the dress, and 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 my mother was living, and I think it was I. The, the marriage was for my mother. It was exactly mm-hmm. who she would have wanted me to marry. You know, straight out of Central Casting. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I met Michael, I, um, I, my eyes were very open to who he is, who I was, you know, all, all of that sort of sense of, um, we're embarking on this life. But I couldn't have imagined at 34 when I met him, what, what it is to actually go through time with someone. Yeah. I, I don't think, that's something you, don't think that, you could have. I don't think that's something you can ever do. I couldn't have foreseen, um, losing parents, you know, contending with a sick baby. Having mm-hmm. the ups and downs, uh, you know, of of professional life, um, uh, growing at different rates at different moments, and the sort of dance—it's almost like a helix or something of yeah. that happening—and then, and then that beautiful moment of kind of being in the same, like coming back together in, in in that place of like this is here we are, you know, here here we are again, and moving forward of just kind of walking down that road. I don't know that that's something that anyone can ever do until they're there, until they're doing it, until they've. Until they've done it.
0: So even though the seeds were there, they're the you're not aware. One is not aware that the seeds are there only Precisely. in hindsight. Precisely. Yeah. And
1: and I think at that moment what I was referring to was that it was our first date, and Michael had just gotten back from Somalia, where he had produced a piece for 60 Minutes. And he had a big check waiting for him at 60 yeah. Minutes, and he needed the check so that he could go deposit it. And pay bills. So that he could pay his maintenance on his apartment. And, you know, that, that sense of living sort of close to the edge, um, which is something that he's more comfortable doing than I am. Yeah. Ha- and that's part of our marriage. it's part of our dynamic. He's a bigger um embracer of risk than I am, but that has also enabled me to live in some beautiful ways that I would not have otherwise lived, even though I
0: you can't Do you think he made you braver?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And also you can't you can't change one thing without being willing to change yeah. it all. Amy Bloom has a line that
0: she came up with in a conversation we were having about marriage and she said Typically, the companion to the quality that drives you crazy about your spouse is the quality that you adore about them. And she was talking about that her husband drives too fast, and she's always, like, wildly upset with him and tense in the car. But then she loves that sense of freedom and bravery and adventure that he's got, and that's the same and it's the you, twin.
1: It's the companion. And you don't get to cherry pick.
0: Yeah. I, I I describe this, which my son has explained to me, is like a very dated way of even talking about something. When we were kids and you went to a Chinese restaurant, you could pick from column A and column B. And I, and I say, you know, marriage isn't that you get to pick the best from column A and column B. <laughs> Right. Right. But there is a part of all of us that think you can't. You say, oh, it drives me crazy that he does X
1: but I love this. Well, you know what? They go together. Exactly, exactly. And, and to go back to the idea of certain kind of poor choices, um, I did it myself, and I've certainly seen a lot of other people do it, um, marrying somebody because they look good on paper, right? Yeah. Like, that's the that's the whole sort of, like, these qualities, these are the qualities that I want, or these are the qualities that I think I'm supposed to want, as opposed to the total, whole, living, breathing, well, the other pulsing part of it, human
0: being. the other part of it is... Um, And I I forget where I read this. Um, It might have been a David Brooks column or something about that you come wired temperamentally to be in a marriage, have the durability to be in a marriage for the long term, that you that you are wired to be committed to a relationship as a frame. And then within it, you make it work as opposed to someone who doesn't have that capacity. So any one of these things that you and Michael went through and they just want, they they can't go there mm-hmm. because they don't have that that commitment of a frame, I am committed to a relationship. So this is occurring within that box, which doesn't mean you can never get out of the box, but it means that it guides you.
1: Right, right. And and. You know, and I think that there's something really uh, beautiful and tender about that. Saying Absolutely. Like, no, no matter, no matter w- what, I'm in this with you, and and I'm not looking over my shoulder. And um, I mean, not to be. I mean, I'm, af- I'm afraid this could sound judgmental, and I don't mean it this way. But the other kind of non-commitment, you know, the the, the, the kind of person who doesn't sort of feel that necessity or isn't wired that way tends to just repeat in some way or another, like, now this is the one. Oh, no, she's the one. No, no, she's the one. That's right. And, uh, you know, it's like various Woody Allen characters that he's played, you know, going on over the course of a lifetime, and there's kind of an arrested development there where it never moves beyond a certain point. Yeah. You say the stumbles and
0: falls, the lapses in judgment, the near misses, the could-haves. I've become convinced that our lives are shaped less by the mistakes we make than when we make them there is less elasticity now, less time to bounce back. How's that shaping how you think about your marriage now? Does it make you
1: less brave or more brave? Does it make you more patient or less patient? I think that that's a really interesting dividing line, right, among people in general. Right. What does that do? Um, I think that It makes me definitely more patient. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of bravery, it depends on the kind of bravery we're talking about. I think when it comes to my work, it makes me more brave because I'm very aware of wanting to do as much as I can Mm -hmm. and that there's just, in terms of actuarial tables, less time in front of me than behind me, which I think is why this moment, being in midlife, having a kid who's only going to be at home for another Year Minute. and a half, right? Minute, exactly. And and a marriage, you know, sort of coming up on 20 years. You know, there's there's enough time. What do I want to do with that yeah. time? How do I want to live? How do I want to do? How do we want to do? There's not no time. There's not no time, but there's not endless time. Yeah. And that, that passage that you, that you just read is is a really important passage to me in the book because that whole idea of when we make mistakes yeah. felt like I had hit upon something for me, that felt really significant. Um, I did really stupid things in my 20s, but my bounce-back ability was, and like, infinite. you know, I was like one of those little rubber balls. You just, like, you know, throw yeah, exactly. against the wall, and it just, yeah. But you make, and I've seen this with some, some close friends of mine, a similar kind of mistake now. In, in now. or in, in your is mid- almost fatal. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's just that. about impossible to recover from. and I watch that. Yeah, and that, that in terms of time, elasticity, and, um, and the uh, consequences. It's one of the things that I find makes me sad more often than
0: I like to be these days as I um, listen to friends or family. It's not the idea that, oh, I can no longer be an astronaut or cure cancer. It's that I don't have enough time to course correct what I've screwed up at 65 right. or 60. Right. And the, and because even though I think it's never too late, the odds start to go against you. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like a math person. So the odds just start to feel, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're taking something that had a shot mm-hmm. and making it closer to a miracle. Mhm. Mhm. That's well put. So I want to close with this piece that made me think about something that Anne Royfe wrote in her book Epilogue. So she had known her husband uh, since she had been a teenager. And she talks about, the book is about losing her husband. And she, at the end of the book, says, I thought about a lot of what I would lose when my husband died, but what I forgot is that I would lose my 16-year-old self, Mm. that that died Mm. with it, and that nobody else had that. And when you uh, talk at the end, just towards the end of the book, And he said, we have raised Jacob together. We know each other in a way that that young couple couldn't have fathomed. Our shared vocabulary, our own language will die with us. And how does that notion, I mean, that to me is so beautiful, Danny, that idea, because that takes over everything else. Is that what you were thinking about when you thought about the title of the book, that this was all contained within this beautiful, you know, beautiful shape, of, but being together with it moving? Or am I just making that up?
1: I didn't think about that in terms of the title. I mean, really, I I, I was... I came upon the title in thinking about uh, a word that would, would, would imply time without using the word time. time. And, um, and then when, I, when I, I was driving along and I thought hourglass, and it was so perfect that I, it seemed impossible that it hadn't been used, right? Or, or that it just was so right. Um, I think of it like the sand being together but moving. Yeah, yeah. Or someone said to me recently it's as if you're pinching the middle of the hourglass but you don 't know where the middle is you don 't know that it 's the middle mm. like where where are you pinching it? you know we don 't know we can never know yeah. um, that that passage that you just read' so beautiful, our shared vocabulary, our own language well, and that's that 's over time what becomes the most precious. If two people make it precious, if it's, you know, we, we just got back from Italy where we run this writers' conference. It was our 11th year doing it, of coming to the same place in the same hotel, in the same room, with the same balcony, and the same view, and new people coming, and these wonderful writers coming to study and to teach. And multiple times during the course of that week, Michael and I, one or the other of us, stopped in like sort of took the other's hand and just said, look what we've made. Hmm. You know, like, look, look at this thing that we've made together. Yeah. So just being awake and alive and open to the awareness. So we, we, With our kid, we do it all the time. Like, look at what we've made. You yeah. know? But also just that sense of all of it. The, the you know, he, he knew... My mother he never knew my father, but he, yeah. knew, he knew my mother. I have known both of his parents for 20 years, and all of his nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters and and just that that sense of what it is to be to go through life together, the all of it, the, you know the beauty and the terror. Mm.
0: Well, Danny, I really want to thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. I, you know, I've been a fan of yours for a long time, and every time I read your next book, I think, oh, this is the best thing Danny's ever <laughs> written. But as a person um, who thinks a lot about marriage and thinks marriage can be the dividing line between people being happy and unhappy, I just think you've added to the conversation in a very important way.
1: Thanks, Roxanne. You're welcome. Love. talking to you. <laughs>
0: Thanks again to Danny Shapiro. Her book, Hourglass, Time, Memory, and Marriage, is available now. Don't forget to subscribe to Just the Right Book Podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, rate and review us. We want to hear from you. And please email your questions to info at justtherightbookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, a division of CRN International. Thanks to our producer, Christina Torres, and our sound engineer, Pat Keough. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Thank you all for listening.